Today, we're going to continue in this first chapter of Revelation where John is on the Isle of Patmos. It's, he's on the Lord's day. He says he's in the Spirit and the Lord appears to him. And today, we're going to talk about Jesus Christ, the glory of God. The glory of God gives us reason to rejoice. It gives us reason to hope. It gives us reason to love. It gives us reason to live. And not just survive. You know, some people live to survive. Some people learn how to survive. But God doesn't want us just to live and survive. God wants us to live an abundant life. Now, that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. To some people, an abundant life means you have lots of money and a big house and a nice car and you don't have any worries. But that's not the abundant life that Jesus was talking about. Nothing wrong with having a big house and a nice car and plenty of money in the bank. If you have that, I'm happy for you. But there are a lot of people on planet Earth who don't have a house, don't have a bank account, don't even have a car, don't have any way of getting any of that stuff. And the abundant life that Jesus came to give us applies as much to them as it does to any of us. And so very often here in America, because we have so much abundance all around us, we equate the abundant life Jesus talked about with this material abundance. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as we understand where that comes from and why we should be thankful to God for any abundance we have materially, emotionally, or spiritually. But the abundant life that Jesus talked about when he says, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly, is a spiritual life. It's an eternal life. It's a life that never ends. It's a quality of life that's not determined by my outward circumstances. It's a quality of life that's determined by what is happening on the inside of me, what is on the inside of me. And if we're looking to external things and external people to be that source of happiness or that source of abundance, we've got a problem. Because only Jesus ultimately can provide that for us. Now here's John, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the title of this book. We call it a book. And a lot of people think the revelation of Jesus Christ or the book of Revelation is a book about the Antichrist and the end of, in the, and the, end of the world and all these cataclysmic things that, that supposedly are going to come upon the world one day. But that's not what this book is about. The title tells us what it is about. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not about an Antichrist. It's not about wars. It's about Jesus it's about Jesus being revealed to us and us seeing Jesus through eyes of faith in such a way and understanding that the life that Jesus came to give to us is so abundant that it can't be taken away from us. No man, no government, no world system can take from us what Jesus has given to us. Now, if we're using Jesus to try to get things... That's a different story. Those things can be and probably will be taken away from us eventually. If, if not before, they certainly will be taken away from us in death. So whatever we can gain for ourselves here on this earth, we will not carry that to heaven. 
We're not going to carry any material thing. We're not going to carry any money. We're not going to carry any status that we may have earned here on this earth. But what we will take with us is the eternal life, the abundant life that Jesus has given to us by grace through faith in him. So this is very important for us to understand. This is why God wants us to live and to rejoice and to have hope fully in all things. Jesus Christ is the glory of God. We will know and we will see the glory of God as we see Jesus by faith. And one day we will see that glory face to face. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. This is not my text today, but I want to read this to you. The title of this message is, Jesus Christ, the glory of God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Where is the glory of God seen and known? The scripture teaches us it is known, it is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the glory of God. He is the glory of God that was personified, that walked on this earth. And we beheld his glory, John writes, even as the only begotten of the Father. So let's read Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. I'm going to read down to the end of the chapter, verse 20. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his hand on me, he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and write which are, and the things which are, and the things which will take place 
after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the word of God. And we ask that you would this morning give us ears to hear your voice, your word. We ask, God, that you would open our hearts and open our minds and do a work in us by your Holy Spirit, that you would change us and transform us, that you would conform us to the very image of the Son of God. That, Lord, if there is hardness of heart in this room today, that you would break that hardness, that you would give to us hearts of flesh, hearts that are moldable, shapeable, and that you would do that for your glory and change us and use us. We ask this, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, John here is banished to this island. Church history tells us, church tradition tells us that all of the apostles of Jesus, all of the original disciples were martyred for their faith. Judas, who fell away because he was the son of perdition, he never belonged to the Lord. This is what Jesus says, uh, recorded for us in John's gospel. Judas fell away because he was not Jesus, he didn't belong to Jesus. He was the son of perdition. He committed suicide because of his betrayal of Jesus. The other 11, including the apostle Paul, who became an apostle of Jesus Christ when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, they were all martyred for their faith, except for John. Church tradition tells us they tried to boil John, they tried to kill John in every way you can imagine, and he would not die. Whether that was true or not, I don't know, but what we do know is that they banished him to this island because they could not stop him from preaching the gospel. So they put him on an island where there was no one to preach to. Yet here we are today reading his, his revelation of, of Jesus Christ, reading this book, that he wrote for the churches, delivered to the churches. And so John is still speaking today. The Lord is still speaking through John today, even though John is long gone. John, in this opening chapter of the revelation of Jesus Christ, gives us a description of Jesus. He gives us specifically a description of the glory and the beauty of the Lord Jesus in his glory. Christ is addressing his church by addressing seven specific churches in Asia. Now, in chapter 2, Christ goes on and he dictates, in the next chapters, he dictates seven letters written specifically to seven churches. And he addresses these specific churches in Asia. The church is an organized, living Body. It is the body of Christ. It is a people united under the headship of Jesus Christ. The church is called together for the glory of God. The church was birthed and established for the glory of God. In fact, all things exist for the glory of God. God's glory is seen in the working out of his plan and all of his purpose in us 
and in all things that he has made. John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. John was in worship. Now, what does that mean he was in the spirit? There's all kinds of things we could speculate about, but I think it's safe to say that he was in a state of of being in which he was wholly focused and engaged in the Lord, in his spirit, in his mind, and in his body. We're not told specifically what he was doing, but we are told specifically what day he was in the spirit. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And the Lord's day was the title of what we call Sunday. Today is the Lord's day. In our weekly calendar, it's Sunday. In modern calendars, it's often put at the last of the week. I don't like those calendars because Sunday is not the last day of the week. Sunday is the first day of the week. Saturday is actually the last day of the week. And Sunday is the first day of the week. It was called the Lord's Day because Sunday was the day that Jesus was resurrected. The reason the Christian church has come to worship on what we call the Lord's Day or Sunday, the first day of the week, is because that was the day of the week Jesus was raised on. And it became associated with the worship of the Lord. They gathered on the Lord's Day and they worshiped the Lord. If this had been Saturday, the Sabbath, John would have said on the Sabbath, he was a Jew. He knew the difference between the Sabbath and the Lord's day. But just like everything else God gave us through the law, everything God gave us from Sabbaths to feasts to temples and tabernacles and all the furnishings inside, they were all given to us to point us to one thing, one person. They were given to us. To point us to Jesus. So who is our Sabbath rest today? Jesus is our Sabbath rest. We don't have to work any longer. Now I'm not saying you don't have to get up and go to work in the morning. You do, right? And the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. But when we talk about entering into the Lord's rest, we're talking about working for our life, for our salvation. This is the abundant life Jesus came to give to us. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we enter into the rest that Jesus provides for us through his finished work on the cross. So it was the Lord's day. John was in the spirit. He was worshiping the Lord. And John heard a voice like thunder, like a trumpet Listen how John describes it. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, verse 10. And then it says that he heard and he turned. So John heard, then he turned to see the voice. Now think about this. John is worshiping. Christ could have appeared to John any place. He could have appeared right in front of him. He could have appeared in a manner and in a place that John would not have had to turn. But Christ appeared to John in a way that caused John to have to turn. Christ spoke from a place requiring John to turn. 
When we hear the word of the Lord, we often hear it from a place that requires us to turn toward the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we hear the word of God, I believe most often God puts us in a place so that when we hear his word, he wants us to turn. To turn from what? To turn from our ways, to turn from our sin, to turn from all kinds of things. And this is what happened to John. He heard the word of the Lord, he heard the voice of the Lord, and he turned. And when he turned, John saw. He said, I turned to see the voice. John heard the voice and he turned and he saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, he saw one like the Son of Man. This is how John describes Jesus. He saw one like the, the Son of Man. That was the favorite description Jesus used for himself. More than any other term, Jesus described himself as the Son of Man. Now, this is significant because this comes out of the book of Daniel. When Daniel has a vision, and Daniel, in his vision, sees one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days, the very throne of God, and God gives to this one like the Son of Man a kingdom, a kingdom that fills the earth, a kingdom that has no end. When Jesus comes back, when he is resurrected and he comes to his disciples just before his ascension, he says to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus, after he conquered sin, after he conquered death, he was in a position to receive all authority, the kingdom that would be given to him by his father. And Jesus declared that authority to his church. He declares it to us today. So this is important for us. Jesus Christ is the glory of God. And in his glory, there is his power and his authority. And that glory, that power, that authority is for his church today. So John sees Jesus standing in the midst of these seven golden lampstands. John saw the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of his church. And if Christ is in the midst of his church, then we can be sure that the glory of God is in the midst of his people. So every week today, we're going to do it. We're going to come to the table we're going to take the bread and we're going to take the cup and we're going to proclaim the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. Now, we say the Apostles' Creed every week. And in the Apostles' Creed, there's a line toward the end that says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Sometimes that confuses people. And they say, well, wait, I thought you were non-denominational. Why do you say you believe in the Catholic Church? The word Catholic means universal. It's not capital C denomination, Roman Catholic Church. It's Catholic, little c. It's a word that simply means universal. I believe in the universal church. So right now, there are 
brothers and sisters, men, women, and children all over this globe worshiping the Lord. They're part of the Catholic, the universal church. And Christ is in the midst of his church. Now, the the capital C Catholic church believes that when you come to the table of communion, that that bread actually turns into the body of Jesus and that cup of wine actually turns into the blood of Jesus. We do not believe that. But do we believe that the body and the blood, that the Lord Jesus is present here at this table? Yes, we do. My, half my family is Catholic, and, and a few years ago they invited me to an axe retreat. And I remember when you know, they had the bishop there and everything, when they brought the presents out, you know, everyone was supposed to kneel when the presents went by because that wafer and that gold cup was Jesus. Let me tell you, church, Jesus is not a wafer and a cup. I love my Catholic family, and I love my Catholic friends, and I believe I'm going to be in heaven with them. And I think they're going to realize when they get to heaven one day that Jesus was never a wafer in a cup. He's not, he's not in that thing right there, and he's not in that thing right there. Where is Jesus then? If we believe Jesus is present at the table, then where is he? Well, he's right here in us. That's why we're called the body of Christ. Jesus is present in us. His spirit has been poured into our hearts, Paul writes in his letter to the Romans. He's poured his love into our hearts by his spirit. Christ lives in us. This is why we have the hope of glory. Jesus Christ is the glory of God, and we have the hope of glory because Jesus lives in us by grace through faith in him. And when we come to the table to take that bread and to take that cup to proclaim the body and the blood of Jesus, we are the body of Christ and Christ is present here because we are present here. And guess what? His glory is here. Now we're going to read where John begins to describe Jesus. And, And it's such a glorious sight that John falls down dead at the feet of Jesus, as though he were dead. And Jesus has to put his right hand on him and say, get up, son, don't be afraid. But just because we look very normal here, I mean, you guys look very normal, right? I mean, we're just normal human beings. Different shapes, different sizes. We're just different. Some have hair, some don't. Some of you have hair. The less fortunate have hair. Some of us more fortunate ones don't. I never have a bad hair day. The Lord has blessed me. We're all different, very normal. But is the glory of God here? Yes, it is. Because the glory of God resides in you, because Jesus resides in you. And that's something that you should not forget. When you're having a very normal day, and maybe it's not a very good day, maybe it's a pretty bad day, maybe it's a pretty sad day, that doesn't change the reality of the glory of God that dwells in you. You need to get your eyes off of 
whatever it is they might be on. Maybe you need to hear the voice of the Lord. Maybe you need to hear the word of the Lord. And maybe you need to turn from whatever you're looking at and turn and see the voice. Turn and see the word. Turn to Jesus and let him reveal his glory, not in some manifestation out here, but in the manifestation right here in your heart. He is in your heart. His glory resides in you. This is why we have reason to rejoice always. This is why we have reason to be thankful in all things, the Bible says. John described Christ in all of his glory, clothed in glory and in beauty. Jesus Christ is presented here in the Revelation as representing all of his offices. He is the king. We talked about this two weeks ago. He is the ruler of all. He is our great high priest. He is the intercessor for his people. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is the prophet declaring the word of the Lord. He is the just and righteous judge come to judge the whole earth. He will judge sin in those who have rejected him. I hear people all too much who are upset because of everything that's happening in our world. But the Bible says, don't be upset about that. Don't look to the things happening in the world. Look to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Pray for those things. Pray with thanksgiving. Take those things to the Lord in prayer with thankfulness that he is the Lord. He is the king. He is the ruler of all. He is the sovereign over everything. We don't understand everything, but we have one who is the ruler and the sovereign over everything. And in this description that John gives us, he describes Jesus in all of his offices. His garments convey all of these, just as Aaron was to have holy garments for glory and for beauty. That's what Exodus 28.2 tells us. When God is giving Moses the command, and he says, gather these artisans together to make all of these things and make holy garments for Aaron, for glory and for beauty. We see Christ here in full glory and full beauty as the ultimate fulfillment of what every priest, every judge, every prophet, and every king could only foreshadow and point people to. The purpose of all the prophets, of all the kings, of all the priests, of all the judges, of all that God has put in his word for us, the, the, the point of all of that was to point us to Jesus. And here we see Jesus in the fullness of glory. And John describes Jesus is here and he has a garment that goes down to his feet. And this garment signifies the high rank of a king and a priest. This is not a garment worn for work or for warfare, but a garment worn by a king and a priest ruling and reigning and ministering in peace and in victory. This signifies the rest and the peace that Jesus has entered into and has secured for all who are his. And then it says that this 
garment that went down to his feet had a gold band that came across the chest. It's different than a belt that goes across your waist. This speaks of Christ's kingly and priestly authority, his power, his victory. Unlike the belt of truth, remember in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 6, he talks about the armor of God and he talks about the belt of truth and everything hangs on the belt. So this is a picture of a soldier, a Roman centurion, who's got his belt on and his sword and everything is hanging on this belt. It's a utility belt. It's kind of like a carpenter who wears one of those leather belts and he hangs his hammer, he hangs his drill, he hangs everything there. It's a belt used for utility purposes. Well, in Ephesians 6, this is a belt used for warfare. That's not what we see pictured here. This is a golden band wore higher up upon the chest. It was a sign of kingly and priestly authority. It was not a utility belt for warfare, but it was a golden band signifying that all power and all authority and righteousness and truth have been brought together, collected together in Jesus. This was an adornment of glory worn by a king and a priest. And specifically, this is a picture of this king and this priest who is reigning in victory. Next, John writes, his head and hair were white like wool. He qualifies it as white as snow. The wisdom of the white-headed is to be revered and honored. The honor given to the gray-headed is linked to the fear of the Lord. Listen to Leviticus 19.32. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. Do you know that's a command God gives us in his word? That when an elderly gray-haired person comes into the room, you are to get up and rise in, in honor to them? Proverbs 16.31, the silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. Jesus is pictured here with hair as white as snow. It is a picture of his wisdom. It is a picture of his righteousness. It is a picture presented to us of one that is due all honor and all glory and all praise. He has eyes like a flame of fire. This is the zeal of the Lord, the all-consuming fire of God in his judgment. Christ is the judge of the whole earth, the Bible tells us. His eyes search all things. His eyes like a flame of fire penetrate all things. He is coming to execute his righteous judgment and fiery indignation upon sinful men who have rejected his grace. This is why it's important for us to proclaim the good news of his gospel. Because if any will call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. God will not put to shame any who call upon his name. Well, who can believe in him? Jesus said, whosoever believes. Whoever believes can believe in him. Feet like fine brass as refined in a furnace, John writes. Another 
picture of his glory and of his purity and of his holiness as of a great high priest. The priest who ministered in the tabernacle and the temple did not wear shoes. They went without shoes. They went in bare feet. We see Jesus here in his bare feet, but John says his feet were like brass that had been refined in a furnace, purified, glowing white hot as though refined in a furnace. Jesus is not walking on holy ground. Jesus is holy, and he makes all the ground and everything he touches holy. This is like the picture of the woman with the issue of blood who was unclean. And according to the law of Moses, anything she touched became unclean. And she took a great risk by grabbing hold of the hem of Jesus' garment. And she thought in the midst of that crowd that she could take hold of the garment of Jesus and no one would ever know. And maybe by chance, if she could just touch the hem of his garment, perhaps she could be healed. And do you know what? She was right. The, the, the problem was, though, the moment she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, the Bible says virtue or power went out from Jesus and the woman was healed. After 18 years of going to doctors and never being able to have that issue of blood dealt with, And Jesus stops the procession and he says, who touched me? And his disciples laugh and say, ah, Jesus, people are pressing all over you. What do you mean who touched you? No, someone touched me and power, virtue went out from me. And the woman with the issue of blood was there and she had been exposed. And she was fearful because she had broken the law. She touched in her state of uncleanliness. She touched Jesus. Jesus looked at her and he said, your faith has made you whole. She did not make Jesus unholy. Jesus, the Holy One, the moment she touched him, she became holy. Jesus was not walking on holy ground, barefoot. Jesus is the holy ground. And the ground he touches becomes holy, just like the person he touches becomes holy. It is in complete holiness that Jesus will tread out his righteous and just judgments upon this earth. Just like the Father meted out the wrath upon Jesus for all who are his. He took what you and I deserve. And if you're trusting in Jesus, you will never have to pay for your sin because Jesus has already paid for your sin. But if you're not trusting in Jesus, you're trusting in yourself, whether you believe it or not. And you will give an account according to the word of God. So my advice to you is trust in Jesus because you are untrustworthy and I am untrustworthy. But Jesus is faithful and trustworthy. And if you put your trust in him, he will make you holy. And you can have the assurance that he has already paid for your sin. John describes his voice as being like many waters. His power and his authority is to be heard over all other voices. 
It is to go out into all the earth. In his hand were seven stars. These are the seven messengers of the seven churches. This picture is, is that his messengers are in his hand. This shows the providence of God, the authority of God, and the love of God as he holds and upholds his messengers. Are you to be a messenger for Jesus? The answer is yes, you are. Now, that doesn't mean you're a pastor. Not everyone's called to be a pastor. And that's what these seven angels or these seven messengers were. They were the seven pastors or shepherds of these churches held in the hand of Jesus. In other words, man didn't put them there. God put them there. Jesus put them there. Man doesn't hold their destiny. God holds their destiny. It's a calling from God. But I want you to have hope and encouragement today because though you might not be called to be a pastor, you are called to be a messenger. You are to proclaim the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that proclamation of that message of that gospel makes you a messenger. And I believe that as a messenger of God, you can trust that God holds you in his hand, just like he held these seven stars in his hand. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. This is the word of God. Notice that it is sharp. It's not dull. The sharpness, the power of God's word is not dependent upon you. Please don't believe that. Please don't diminish the power of God's word by thinking that somehow your ability to speak it, your ability to communicate it, the quality of your voice somehow enhances the power of God's word because it does not. The word inherently in and of itself is powerful. It's sharp like a two-edged sword. All you need to do is deliver the message. God will do the rest in his power. The same world that brings comfort, the same word that brings comfort brings correction. The same word that brings life to those being saved brings death to those perishing. The same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that will judge the world one day. This is why it's important for us to deliver the message of God's gospel. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says about the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from its sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You cannot hide from God. You can't even hide the intentions of your heart from God. He knows everything. His word lays open everything and exposes everything to him. You might not believe that's good news, but that's really good news. Just like a heart surgeon who has to go into your heart to repair it that you might live, God takes his word 
And he goes into our heart and he exposes those things that are wrong so that they can be made right. This sharp two-edged sword is not in the hand of the Lord, but in his mouth. This is the same sword that we have been given, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the sword that will judge the nations, that will judge all men. Then Paul writes, his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. This is Jesus in the brightness of his glory. And when he saw Jesus in the brightness of his glory, John says, I fell at his feet as dead. No man can stand before him except that we now have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We cannot stand in ourselves before the Lord. We can only stand in Christ. And Christ declares, do not be afraid. He declares himself to be the first and the last. Verse 17, John writes, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So be it. Jesus gives an amen right there. He puts a period right there. I was dead, but I am alive forevermore, period. Amen. That's the end of it. There is no opportunity that death has again against Jesus. Jesus, once for all, eternally has conquered death. You might say, well, why is death still killing people? Because death has not been yet put underfoot. And the scripture tells us this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there is a day coming though, Paul writes, when Jesus comes and in that day that he comes to this earth, he will finally put his last enemy underfoot and that enemy is death. He says, I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. If we could see Christ in the fullness of his glory as John did, we still in our flesh we too would fall down as dead. But like Jesus did with John, he would remind us, do not be afraid. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus writes, don't fear those who have power over your body to kill your body. Fear him who has power over your soul and your body to cast both into hell. We are never commanded to fear man. We are never commanded to fear this world. We are commanded to fear God. But here's the good news. Listen to John in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear 
In love, but perfect love, cast out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Listen, God does not love you because you decided to love him. If you love him today, if you ever decided to love God, it's because he first loved you. That's the Bible. That's not me. We love him because he first loved us. Being perfected in love is not you learning how to love Jesus more perfectly. Being perfected in love is you understanding that he already loves you perfectly. He loved you first. And when you realize that Christ loved you first and saved you while you were in your sin, you weren't a sinner trying to clean yourself up and then prove that you were worthy of salvation. He saved you while you were dead in your sin. He loved you when you did not love him. In fact, the Bible says you are his active enemy and he loved you. Being made perfect in love means that we need to come to understand his perfect love for us. And if God loves us perfectly, completely, what are you afraid of? If God be for us, who can be against us? What can separate you from the love of God? The Bible says nothing can separate you from the love of God. We now can stand boldly in his presence as he has revealed his love for us in his cross, in his son. Having poured out his love into our hearts by his spirit, we now have confidence in his presence even, even in the day of judgment. The church of the Lord Jesus exists for his glory. He is in the midst of his church and his glory is never absent when he is present. And if two or more are gathered together in his name, he is present there with them according to the words of Jesus. John was alone on the island, but he wasn't alone. Jesus was with him. There was John and there was Jesus. And they had church together. And the glory of God was present. Christ is in the midst of his church. He holds his messengers. He holds you in his hand. He has conquered all of his enemies, including death. Do not be afraid. We have nothing to fear in Jesus. Amen. And Jesus, in his love, invites us to his table. So I want us to prepare to come to the table of the Lord. This is not a table for people who have their act together. You may think you have your act together. But what we measure ourselves against is not other people. What we measure ourselves against is the Lord Jesus and we infinitely fall short measured against him. But the good news is we don't have to try to attain to him. He has brought us up out of sin, out of death, and placed us in him and made us one with him in his father. Trust in Jesus Come to this table, take the bread, take the cup. We'll all take it together in just a moment. If you've never trusted in Jesus, trust him now.
Christian, come to the table. Come to Jesus. Let's stand. Here is your charge. In the scripture, we see that when men encounter God in his glory, they most often react in fear and for good reason. God is to be feared and the fullness of his glory is something that is so other than what we normally encounter. It is shocking to us. We are commanded to fear God. The fear of the Lord is called the beginning of wisdom in Proverbs 9.10. We are never commanded to fear man. We are never commanded to fear this world. In fact, we are repeatedly commanded to fear not. This is what God told Joshua. Fear not, for I am with you, says the Lord. As the Lord has promised that he is with us, he has assured us that he has overcome the world, and for that we can be of good cheer, we can rejoice in all things. God in his glory commands us to fear not. Jesus has overcome sin and death and the world. We have nothing left to fear. Fear God. It is the beginning of wisdom. But that wisdom will lead us to his love that will cast out all fear. In his love, we will stand in his glory and know that he has overcome all things that may cause us to fear even our sin. And in that day that we stand in his presence, we will have no fear, but we will boldly stand for as he is, so are we in this world. Those are the words of the apostle recorded for us to give us hope. I pray you have that hope. I pray you hold on to that hope and that you live boldly and fully for the Lord Jesus without fear of man or of this world. Amen.